This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. One year ago today, a mob of people stormed the US Capitol in an attempt to stop the election of Joe Biden being certified. More than 700 people have since been charged over the attack, and a congressional committee is investigating the events of January 6th. Many of those facing charges are from Florida. WMFE's Joe Burns has been following some of the court cases and joins me now for an update. Joe, thanks so much for being here. Glad to be here, Matt. So one of the cases you've been reporting on, Joe, is that of Kelly and Connie Meggs of Dunallen. Just remind us who they are and what they're charged with. They're part of a major federal conspiracy case with 21 defendants, and four of those have already pleaded guilty. They're accused of planning and coordinating an effort to obstruct the certification of Joe Biden as president and other crimes. Kelly Meggs is the former manager of a Lake City car dealership who lives in Dunellen, which is a small city in Marion County. But he is in federal custody now and will stand trial in April. Prosecutors say he was the self-proclaimed leader of the Oath Keepers in Florida. So Kelly Meggs is kind of a big fish among the Capitol riot defendants. Connie Meggs is his wife. The couple face other charges, too, for entering the Capitol and so forth, but they are not accused of assaulting police like many of the Capitol rioters are, and they have pleaded not guilty. All right, so who are the Oath Keepers? They're one of the largest far-right anti-government groups in the country. Prosecutors call the Oath Keepers a loosely organized collection of individuals, including militia members, some of whom believe the government is co-opted by a cabal of elites to strip citizens of their rights. Authorities say the group focuses on recruiting current and former military personnel, police officers, and other first responders. That's the origin of the Oath Keeper's name. They're supposedly keeping an oath to protect the Constitution. And Joe, what do federal prosecutors have to say about the role the Oath Keepers played in the January 6th uprising? You know, there were several far-right groups with members there. The Proud Boys also had some people there from Florida. But many of the rioters were not affiliated with any extremist groups. So far, 725 people have already been charged. At least 65 of those are from Florida. And more charges are expected. But prosecutors say the Oath Keepers had a well-developed conspiracy with weeks of planning, go-to-meeting calls, training, travel, hotel rooms, encrypted communication, and plans for an armed quick response team on standby. The Oath Keeper's founder has not been charged, though prosecutors say he communicated with the rioters. He is listed in court papers as Person 1. The Oath Keepers were dressed in paramilitary uniforms with gear and patches and all that. They went up the Capitol steps in a military-style formation, each one with a hand on the person in front of them. The indictment alleges that Kelly Meggs was very much involved in the planning and coordination and saw himself as responding to then-President Donald Trump's call to go to Washington and get wild. Joe, some of the other members of the Oath Keepers have already admitted their part in the January 6th uprising. What can you tell us about them? That's right. Uh, Four of them, including three men from Florida, have pleaded guilty and agreed to cooperate. Uh, They have not been sentenced yet. Um... They were lesser players, and you can imagine they'll be part of the trials that are coming up. Meanwhile, there's this congressional subcommittee which is investigating it as well, and and they want to know more about Kelly and Connie Meggs. What kind of information are they after? You know, uh, this is fascinating. The January 6th committee subpoenaed Verizon for the couple's 
cell phone records on December 15th, Connie Meggs had a family plan with her husband on it. So the committee is looking for all their phone data from November through January. We only know this because the Megs has filed a lawsuit trying to block the subpoena. You've got to think the committee is looking into the coordination that went into the Capitol attack and someone outside the group that they may have been talking and texting with. All right, Joe, so where does this case go from here? It's set for trial in April, but are we expecting things to change before then? The trial had been set for this month, Matt, but it was moved to April only because there was so much evidence connected to the Capitol attack that prosecutors couldn't provide it all to the defense attorneys in time and because new evidence kept being developed. They're on the sixth superseding indictment right now. <laughs> it's unclear what might happen next, but it looks like Kelly Meggs is going to be headed to trial. He has a new outspoken lawyer who has already been scolded by the judge for, quote, bombastic arguments and fringe views in his court filings. WMFE's Joe Burns has been covering the court case involving Kelly and Connie Meggs of Donellan. They're part of the Oath Keepers and they're charged in connection with the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. Joe, thanks so much for reporting and thanks for joining us. Still to come, what does 2020 tell us about how future presidential elections could play out? I think what, what January 6 does kind of indicate to us is the degree of polarization in the public, the willingness of people on one side in this case or the other, potentially in the future, to breed and to believe in these you know, theories about the Constitution. A conversation about the far-reaching political consequences of January 6th, that's after the break. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Just how far-reaching are the political consequences of January 6th? And what does 2020 tell us about how future presidential elections could play out? UCF political science lecturer John Hanley says there are big questions about how new voting laws could influence this election cycle and beyond, and what role state legislatures could play in the next presidential election. And he says one thing that January 6th made clear was just how polarised US politics has become. Dr. John Hanley is a political science lecturer at the University of Central Florida. John, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You talked a year ago on uh, national TV about what the January 6th insurrection revealed about the divisions in the United States, and you noted it would take some time for the public to digest what happened. I'm wondering, just reflecting on this a year later, have you, do you feel like you've fully digested the events of that day, and, and what are you thinking about it now, um, 12 months on? Well, I think, you know, we've seen quite a bit more about it. We've seen these uh, prosecutions of the various people who were who were involved in it. I think some of the, perhaps the worst fears uh, that we might have seen that this was going to be something that was highly coordinated by uh, the former president haven't really come to pass. And so there's, in some ways, a, a little bit of a tension between the possibility of something like this happening again and the fact that, you know, there's, there's not really, at this point, uh, a smoking gun that indicates that you really had an effort to really overturn the, the election that was, that was really, you know, having a lot of, of you know, push behind it. January 6th, 2021, and the weeks leading up to it focused a lot more attention than there would normally be on the Electoral College and the role of electors in the presidential election. What do you think the, the long-term implications of that might be on future presidential elections? 
I think there's been some attention to how it works, to the fact that the states do technically get to choose how the electors are going to be allocated. And there is behind it, and something that we haven't really talked about very much in all of this, you know, the possibility of what's called a contingent election, where the election is thrown into the House of Representatives and each state has only one vote, right? So California has as much say in the choice of a president as does Wyoming. And that is really, really a uh, 18th century legacy that, that really would not fit very well with, with how we think of uh, our democratic system today. So I think that there's, there's some of this discussion out there. Mm-hmm. I think there have been some you know, efforts or there's been talk about changing the way that states uh, choose their electors or the possibility that a state's electors could be chosen by a state legislature or a state legislature could overturn the, the choice of the people in the state or to declare the possibility that there was some sort of fraud. I think, you know, that would be a big step for a state to take. Mm-hmm. We haven't had, for the most part, uh, state legislatures choosing electors to the Electoral College really since the 1830s, with a, a couple of exceptions. And voters like uh, the ability to vote for the president. So I think that that would be something that would be very difficult to take away from the electorate. And certainly after an election, it would be difficult to say, well, you know, no, we don't like the way that you did this. So Uh, we're going to go in a different direction. The notion of one state, one vote is an interesting one, and you're right. I don't think there's been much reported on that or even much speculation, but is this something that, you know, scholars of elections and political scientists have been talking about more in the last 12 months, given what happened a year ago? I think it's something that's that's out there. It has been, I think, on a, you know, an intellectual and academic level, something that's been out there for quite some time certainly going back to the 2000 election and, and Florida's role in that. And there's always this question of what happens if there's a, a tie in the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that's even been uh, kind of explored in uh, television shows. So I think that that's out there. And, you know, as academics, as scholars, we're very attuned to the ways in which this constitution, you know, is an 18th century product and, and fits the needs and concerns of that day. I think it would take quite a bit more or a close example of this for this to to really emerge onto the the public consciousness. Mm -hmm. Back to the influence of state legislatures, you know, there were some states where there was a lot more focus on that. Pennsylvania, for example, the, you know, the the role that they play in, in deciding how, you know, the mechanics of a presidential election plays out. And it sounds like from your point of view, they are not necessarily going to play an outsized role in future elections. But again, that seems to be a fear that that some folks may have of, you know, what we saw a year ago was not normal. Therefore, in some ways, the rule book may have been thrown out a little bit. I'm just wondering what your your thoughts are on, you know, whether we might see a legislature, state legislatures playing a different role or, or a bigger role in, in future presidential elections. And even if you look at what's happening this year with the, the midterm elections, if that could presage what we might see in 2024 in some ways. It's an interesting question because the Constitution says that the electors are chosen in the way that the state legislature says. Mm-hmm. So historically, over a long period of time, We've become accustomed to this system that the state voters get to choose and they choose in such a way as the person who gets 
one more vote in the state gets all of the electors of the state. That's normally how it works with only a couple of exceptions. What opened up, I think, in 2020 was the question of what is meant by state legislature. And that's a kind of advanced constitutional law question. There are some who have said that that allows the state legislature, without the input of the governor, to make those provisions for how the election is going to be conducted, how the electors are going to be allocated. And that constitutionally, I don't think there's traditionally been much behind that. There's this case about redistricting Arizona State Legislature versus Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission that deals with the provision of Article One of the Constitution that says that state legislatures choose how the elections for Congress are decided. And the issue in that case was that the voters of that state, through an initiative, set up a redistricting commission that excluded the state legislature. And so the question before the Supreme Court was, you know, can the people be determined to be the legislature for this purpose? And the Supreme Court, by a five to four decision, said that, well, the people can be the legislature. It means the lawmaking process. One of the problems with that is that two of the justices who were in that 5-4 majority, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, and Anthony Kennedy, are no longer on the court, and they've been replaced by justices who are considerably more conservative than them. But even Chief Justice Roberts in that decision in dissent said that, well, legislature means the normal legislative process of that state. And if we go back to the the time of the founding, the 1780s, where this uh, constitution was put into place, most of the state legislatures or most of the state governments did not have a gubernatorial veto, right? We normally think of the process by which uh, election laws are being made as the state legislature writes the law, the governor signs or vetoes that law. When redistricting plans go through, uh, the governor signs or vetoes those laws as well. And so unless the court takes a, a step that's considerably away from, from Chief Justice Roberts, and it may, you know, you've seen some changes in, in the court moving to away from him even, it would seem that that interpretation would still hold, right? That the governor would still be needed in uh, a change to the elector- election laws or to go around to end run a, uh, a vote of the people after the election. Do you think we're going to see some of these discussions wind up in the Supreme Court? I think it would really depend on how close uh, the 2024 election is. I think that there's a huge danger for, for the state legislatures to involve themselves in elections in this way. We saw this in 2020, where the governor and and secretary of state in Georgia, uh, you know, really didn't want to be put in the position that that they're in. And you're dealing with, by definition, states that are 50-50. They're very, very close. The people who are are making these decisions are probably up for for re-election in the future. And and so they're not going to want to alienate uh, the choice of their states. Uh, I think it is possible that that we would, however, see that in another close election. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be interesting to see how the Supreme Court would would rule on a, a question like this. I mean, so much about 2020 was unusual, right? And then leading up to January 6th and, and thinking about 
the spotlight that was put on, for example, the Secretary of State in, in Georgia, that phone call between the president and the president's people and the secretary, pretty unusual. I mean, is there some kind of precedent for that in the past? I don't, th- I don't think you see really, I mean, that is something extraordinary, that level of, you know, presidential pressure, right, is something that you associate more with, you know, a, a Lyndon Johnson in the, in the office and, and those, you know, famous videos that you, you hear of him or the, uh, the famous treatment uh, that was meted out to other people in the, in the government or Richard Nixon. But I don't, you know, you don't get quite to that extent where you have uh, the president, you know, asking for, for votes or asking something to happen. Right. That is an area where he is potentially in legal danger in the state of Georgia. So, so that is that's a that's an element that I don't we have not seen a, a president, you know, brought in on, on state electoral fraud uh, charges. Did January 6, uh, 2020 challenge some of what you know and what you believe about how the Electoral College works and how presidential elections are decided? Not quite. I think that there was very little question that a valid certification of the vote that came in from a state was going to be opened by the vice president. The claims that someone like Vice President Pence could could unilaterally decide to reject a, a certificate, that wasn't really something that very many people at all thought could happen. Right? We saw that with Al Gore uh, in 2000 certifying you know, someone winning over him in a very close election. And we saw that in 1960, where Richard Nixon was the vice president and in a, an extremely close election, validated the, the victory of, of John F. Kennedy. So I think in some ways, what January 6th indicates is that the system proceeds, you know, those institutions are in some ways validated uh, because these arguments have been rejected, mm-hmm. uh, because they were rejected by by Mike Pence. I think what what January 6th does kind of indicate to us is the degree of polarization in the public, the willingness of people on one side in this case or the other, potentially in the future, to breed and to believe in these you know, theories about the Constitution or about, you know, what happened in the state that are that are really outside of what people who are knowledgeable about this or, or people who are uh, exposed to to mainstream views about about these things think. Right. There were very few people who thought after the states met in the Electoral College in, in December that there was any question about what would happen right? even after the uh, absentee ballot, you know, moved in Pennsylvania and Georgia and indicated that uh, Joe Biden was was going to win those states. It was pretty much over. This idea that uh, it's not over until the the person is actually inaugurated on January 20th. um, I think that that was a you know, that was not something that anyone really thought at this stage. Some states have enacted new laws, too, in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Georgia, for example, there are fears from some critics of these new voting laws that they could be used to take over county election boards. Uh, I'm wondering which of these laws you're kind of paying particular attention to to see how they actually work in, in real life, you know, once once we hit the next set of elections. Yeah, 
I think, you know, when you see Georgia's law allowing the state effectively to take over the county election board and to, uh, to implement those procedures, that is one to look at. I think anything that limits in large metropolitan populations the ability of, of people to, to do absentee balloting or to vote, you know, to turn in their ballots, something where we might see long lines, for instance, that's problematic as well, or overly aggressive efforts to purge voter rolls. You know, those are all areas where you could see influence in the election. On the other hand, even in those, those places like Georgia, we do see a lot of early voting. Mm-hmm. And there is much more uh, transparency about who is on the voter rolls, who is being eliminated uh, from the voter rolls than would have been the case in the past. I think one thing that the, you know, the listeners and the public can be uh, you know, optimistic about from the, from the perspective of, of voting is that um, there is a, a much larger uh, group of, of lawyers and, and interest groups and experts who are interested in, uh, in these decisions and who are going to follow them and who are going to make sure that they're litigated in the courts as opposed to being simply the decisions of uh, you know, individual politicians. Um, it's very difficult, I think, in today's uh, legal climate and today's political climate to just knock a bunch of voters off, off the rolls. Uh, and, you know, especially to knock them off the rolls for, uh, for partisan purposes or, or to no good, uh, for no good purpose. You alluded to this, or you hinted at a little bit at the start of our conversation, talking about what may come out of the select committee panel inquiry. But I'm wondering, what, what do you see as, as sort of emerging from that substantively? I know they have hearings scheduled to start fairly soon, public hearings on that. So what, what are you expecting to come out of that um, panel? I think we've already seen, uh, you know, some of the indications of who was involved in this. And there have been, you know, some of the text messages from from Mark Meadows, I think, were, you know, indicated uh, the reaction to this, you know, the former president's inaction during that time, uh, I think, is is something that has been, uh, you know, amply demonstrated by this. I think the January 6th committee, however, they run the danger that they are, you know, time is slipping away from them. The likelihood is high that Republicans will take over Congress uh, in the next election. And so all of the, you know, legal challenges, provided that they are not disposed of in the next, uh, you know, 11 months or so, what those will result in is a new Congress will, will come along, Republican Congress, Republican House, at least, and they will put an end to these inquiries. And so I think the problem for the January 6th committee is that because what they're dealing with is complicated by these questions of executive privilege and attorney-client privilege, and as we saw uh, in these recent revelations about Sean Hannity, First Amendment protection for, for journalists, unless the judicial system, unless the, the, the Supreme Court is willing to quickly deal with these uh, with these questions and and the these materials. It's unlikely that we'll see some of the major players, the Rudy Giuliani's and uh, Roger Stone's, potentially and so forth, 
brought before Congress and forced to either answer questions or, or take uh, the Fifth Amendment or to you know, supply a lot of these documents that uh, could potentially be of, of interest to the January 6th committee. When you look at uh, congressional investigating committees in recent times, um, I think one of the most notable exercises of investigation was the Republicans who were investigating Benghazi mm-hmm. right, because they were able to go at it for a very long period of time. And slowly they were able to issue requests that eventually got them to the Hillary Clinton email server, which was used to, to great effect by the Republicans in, in 2016. That was a four-year investigation that allowed them to do that. And the, the Democrats and, you know, the Liz Cheney and Adam Kinziger, who are, you know, in this committee, they're dealing with, with much less time and a much greater level of opposition from, from the people that they're investigating. Finally, John, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, do you feel like the United States is more or less divided politically and, and I guess socially than it was on January 6, 2021? I think that those those divisions are continually changing. I think uh, clearly there is a portion of the electorate uh, to the degree that they're very interested in politics uh, that have embraced these theories about uh, an election being stolen or there not being a legitimate president or or what have you. Um, And that is one element of division for many other people for whom politics is not an important part of their lives, they life goes on. And, and I think one of the things that we've seen over the last couple of years, when we look at politics generally, is that uh, divisions over such things as uh, schools opening and responses to coronavirus restrictions, you know, policy around race, and, you know, in particular in the state of Florida, right, we saw uh, a Latino population moving considerably in, in the Republican direction in the, in the 2020 election. So I think one of the things that's come out of the Trump administration is an electorate that is divided. Yes, it's more divided by politics, perhaps, than it was in the past. But some of the divisions by gender, by race, uh, have actually actually diminished from 2016 and from 2012 to 2020. And so the electorate is continually in this process of change. Um, and I think given the changes to the economy, given a lot of the other social changes that we're seeing out there, it's an interesting question where we're going to end up in 2022 or 2024. Well, Dr. John Hanley lectures in political science at the University of Central Florida. Thanks so much for your insights and thanks for your time. Thank you, Matthew. Up next, how do you teach the insurrection to seventh graders? And then, like, I just stopped and just turned on the news. It's like, how am I going to, you know, teach literally about how a bill becomes a law when there's, like, a genuine riot happening in the Capitol? Civics teacher Matt Kiernan says it was a teachable moment that his classes are still talking about. That's when we come back. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. How do you teach the events of January 6th to a 7th grade class? Civics teacher Matt Kiernan was in the middle of class when he got a text alert about the riot at the US Capitol. 
He says it was an opportunity to show how the mechanism of government functions in extreme circumstances. Well, Matt Kiernan teaches 7th grade civics in West Palm Beach. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, let's just start by um, talking about the 7th grade civics curriculum. What does it look like and what kind of skills and knowledge should a 7th grade student graduate the class with? So uh, we're really fortunate here in Florida that, um, you know, for quite a long time, the state has placed a real emphasis on kind of practical civics education, um, which is, you know, unfortunately uh, juxtaposed by the fact that there's also a state assessment attached at the end of this that's worth 30% of the kid's grade. So a lot of times the more practical conversational knowledge that you have doesn't necessarily translate to a multiple choice test. But uh, nevertheless, a lot of it just goes through kind of the basics of uh, what it means to be a citizen. I think that's basically how I start uh, my class uh, at the beginning of the year is just what is a citizen? Um, and it goes into, I think that kind of, that question really begets everything else in the class because it kind of orients you in terms of what is expected of you in terms of what you know, um, your rights, responsibilities, your obligations, your duties as a citizen. Um, you know, your kind of just basic knowledge, civic literacy about how the government works and, you know, who the governor is and how a bill becomes the law, all the schoolhouse rock stuff. Um, but then it also kind of, you know, creates kind of, um, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like this it's sort of magical year in seventh grade where the kids, uh, you know, transition from being a child, uh, like an elementary kid into being like a proto a human adult. And, uh, you know, being a citizen means not just like receiving the benefits of things, but also participating in your community. And so um, a lot of the civics curriculum is based not just on, you know, kind of when the Declaration of Independence was signed, but like why it would be even significant that you know what the Declaration of Independence and who wrote it and who was he writing to? Uh, why were they writing it? And wait, that guy owned slaves. <laughs> um, so a lot of it is just, um, you know, not just not just extending what the declaration is as like a definition, um, but more about like what the fact is both then and now. So do they have some of that down already before they come into class? Or is it really kind of like you're, you're teaching them the basics from scratch? Yeah, I, uh, you know, um, I've, I've been fortunate to teach in the same school for almost a decade now. Um, and I'm, I did a school that's from kindergarten to eighth grade. So I really get to, you know, see what the education social studies looks like, uh, you know, all the way from the beginning. And, uh, yeah, no, I'm teaching it all from scratch. <laughs> you know, theoretically, the theoretically, every Florida student is supposed to have a fairly robust social studies uh, curriculum that they get like from day one. My son's a first grader and he certainly gets stuff. But um, in, in reality, a lot of times in schools, what happens is that the social studies time um, is actually spent on reading because reading is a tested subject. Um, and so uh, because there's so much high stakes testing, um, they often either jettison social studies completely or they like say, oh, well, social studies is reading. So I'm going to give you a worksheet on Martin Luther King and we're going to call that social studies, which is not. That's just Martin Luther King. So, um, you know, um, I would like to say certainly I'm sure the intention is that they come into class with a, a certain uh, knowledge of stuff. But uh, oftentimes there's an awful lot of deficit. So I have to get into nitty gritty stuff like there are 50 states uh florida is one of them but there are 49 others um you know so um yeah there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of illiteracy that that comes in uh as well unfortunately 
So how about contemporary events and, and how important are those? How do you try and incorporate them into the curriculum? Well, I'm, I, I think one of the, the best parts of being a civics teacher is every single year my class is different. Um, you know, I'm, I'm so fortunate to like teach a class that is like every moment of everyday relevance. Um, I, I compare my class to like the giver where early on the kid starts seeing red and then he, he notices red is everywhere and it's always been there. He just didn't know what red was, so he didn't perceive it. Um, civics education is a little bit like that. All of these things, all of the, you know, sort of news that like 12 and 13 year olds would just otherwise just tune out because it's news and ew um all of a sudden it becomes just much more relevant um and so i think current events stuff i mean I, it's funny i was just preparing stuff for like the end of january um today during my planning uh and <laughs> i saw um i included a meme in one of my powerpoints about like world war three um because like I'm updating a document based on two years ago when the United States uh, authorized the drone strike on Soleimani and there was all that World War III is coming uh, hysteria for a little while. Um, So uh, it's just kind of funny how, you know, every year my class becomes very different because current events are different. I mean, current is different every year, you know. So certainly I never spoke about like mask mandates before the last 18 months or two years, but, uh, you know. That, that's that's an awful lot of it. I've, I've never really talked about home rule either in my class because it's not like necessarily part of the curriculum. But like we here in Florida have a have, have a bit of an interesting definition of home rule, uh, you know, with our Republican governor. Um, so, you know, a lot of the stuff that goes on is um, it's, it's instantly relevant. And the kids kind of when they're too young, they, they don't feel like they're a part of it. But then all of a sudden they're thrust into it as a teenager. And um you know, it's, it's, it's really great to be able to infuse a lot of that in my classroom. For yourself, though, I mean, somebody who's, who has studied this and is now teaching it, um, it must be interesting to, to kind of try and teach when it seems like the ground is shifting just over the last 12 months or 24 months even. And thinking about January 6th, how you teach something around that, like how do you even tackle something which, you know, prior to January 6th, twenty. Uh, 21 would have seemed almost inconceivable a mob storming the uh, u.s capitol as congress was preparing to ratify the election that would be something you just wouldn't have probably thought about before then i just got to be honest with you um i even as a as a teacher um did not understand the mechanics of the electoral certification um <laughs> prior to the lead up to January 6th and the January 6th either i mean it's a lot like like you're taught about what impeachment is but you're not taught like actually the senate has a trial and the house files articles of impeachment like so the nitty gritty having to be a teacher and like become like an instant expert in all of the questions that a 12 year old, not just one 12 year old, but that like 150 12 year olds might ricochet at you. And like, none of them are patient and that's amazing. And they're all super curious and that's great. Um, but having to like prepare for that is, uh, is daunting. And so honestly, as far as the January 6th, uh, you know, um, insurrection last year went, we experienced that in real time. I mean, we were still in the classroom. Um, 
And like, I got a, a news alert actually from, from uh, a mutual friend of ours, Brendan, I got a text alert because he's like, oh my God, there's a riot happening at the Capitol. I'm in the middle of teaching and I, you know, see it on my Apple watch and I, you know, kind of had, you know, something up on my phone. And then like, I just stopped and just turned on the news. It's like, how am I going to, you know, teach literally about how a bill becomes a law when there's like a genuine riot happening in the Capitol. So, um, you know, those students that I was with that day got a very kind of naked, honest human reaction out of me before I had time to even begin to process. Um, the next day was a little bit more thoughtful and conscientious. And so um, taking a step back, anytime you have one of these or anytime I have the opportunity to uh, cover one of these sort of uh, outbursts of violence, whether it be the insurrection at the Capitol or some of the uh, violence that we had in our own community after um, unarmed African-American person was killed by a police officer. I think it's always really important to start with like primary sources. So many of our kids get a lot of secondary and tertiary. um, And I don't know what the fourth version of that is, but they don't get a lot of primary sources, right? They get like what amounts to rumors and conjecture. So um, on January 7th, I came in and I had a series of pictures uh, that I had prepared uh, that the AP or that Getty had, you know, released about things that were going on in the Capitol and surrounding the Capitol. And I started off by just asking, like, what do they want to know? Because they all knew it had happened, but they, they, what did they want to know? And they wanted to know why, who did it, what was their problem, um, just kind of like the basic stuff. And then they became a lot more analytical. And especially when I started showing some of the, you know, pictures of, you know, the QAnon shaman. And once they got over laughing at how ridiculous that person looked, they wanted to, you know, to really understand just like why would someone do that? And what would motivate or possess somebody to do that? You know, I think when you when you start and you ground the conversation in something that's irrefutable, you you know give yourself a better shot not to step on any of this sort of landmines that come with controversial or contentious stuff. Especially in you know when it comes to I teach politics, there's no way for me to not be political in my classroom. Everything I do is political. It's government. So I think if you start off with primary sources before you get into the whole you know what people think and feel and and why of it, you know you kind of sidestep some of that, or at least that's been my experience. If you're just joining us, my guest is Matt Kiernan. He's a seventh grade civics teacher in West Palm Beach. We're talking about the events of January 6th and how that's having an influence on civics education uh, in his classroom and probably classrooms across Florida and the United States. You kind of preempted my question a little bit, and I was going to ask about how media literacy fits into this, but it sounds like that is quite an important part of, of what you do and how you try and get your students a good sort of basic understanding of civics and how it all fits together. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I wish that this was not a civics standard and, and sort of just something that we just do starting from kindergarten. I mean, these, especially now, like all the kids have been gifted these devices and they could go anywhere with them and it's get any information. And that's, that's amazing. And like quite literally magical, but um, you know, we are not arming these kids with like the just basic tools of just like the basic nuts and bolts of like what is a google search and what is google doing google is like just asking for anything and it doesn't rank anything based your your search results based on like accuracy it's based on their ability to you know 
make money off of ads. So I, I think that, you know, embedded within the civics curriculum is several different standards that deal with like media literacy and things like that. And, and it's true that you have like language arts classes that talk about that primary versus secondary source stuff. But yeah, I just got to tell you, not even as a teacher, just as like a human, I am genuinely concerned that we as a society and not just Florida, not even just America, just as a world that we are not raising or frankly just teaching the next generation to just be able to decipher fact from fiction. And just on the basics, like I grew up and I'm sure you were the same, where like if you wanted to get something reliable, you had to go to the library. And that library wasn't like magic. It was just a place with books. But you wouldn't just ask your friend on the playground. Going on TikTok or, or, or Googling just something is the digital equivalent to just like shouting out of your window and reporting back the first thing you hear. And so certainly within the civics curriculum in Florida, like you're, you're supposed to teach it, but it's like one standard. You know, it's like one topic among many. And, you know, it's almost like a wave that crashes over and then you got to move on to learning about federalism. You know, so I try to do my best and there's some great resources out there that I've, that I've come across. But, but you know, I, I'll be the first one to, to jump on a landmine and say that we all need to do better. And I'm no, I'm, I'm, I have no great solutions to that. But that sure needs to be uh, something that we discuss as a as a community. And it sounds too like the, you know, what transpired on January 6th and then afterwards was a little bit of a crash course or a refresher, I suppose, for some of the, the kind of nitty gritty, as you say, nuts and bolts of how politics is actually done and some things that we, we don't often pay too much attention to, like an election being certified. So have you had to re-examine in the subsequent 12 months your understanding of some of those more technical aspects of civics and think about the questions you might be getting from some of your seventh graders? You know, like most people, I took the peaceful transfer of power for granted. It's it's like gravity. You don't think about gravity until, you know, you don't have it. <laughs> and uh, things like, you, you know, the not even just the nuts and bolts, but just like the philosophical presumptions in a democracy that I just as a just as a as a fellow citizen, as a member of the republic, I just took them for granted. And then to see you know, people with, you know, uh, beating a, um, a Capitol police officer bloody with an American flag while chanting USA. That certainly broke something inside of me. And I think that fundamentally broke something, uh, in, in America. It's like when you find out that like Santa isn't real, you know, or, or your mom and dad have been putting the, the dollars in the, uh, under your, uh, you know, under your pillow. The notion of American exceptionalism has always been a fairy tale. Whether you believe it to be true or not, there's nothing different about the humans that happen to be born between like the latitude and longitude of North America versus other parts of the world. Democracy is like Tinkerbell. It only exists if we believe. Um, and part of that belief is an active belief. That's probably why we teach civics 12-year-olds. That's why we want them to know what the amendments are and how the three branches of government works and when they have to register to vote because it's a collective project. And that means that we're all constantly doing our part um, to you know, make this democracy work. I want to ask too, I mean, this is this is 2022 and election cycles are so long and so grueling that it seems like there isn't much of a breather between them. But, you know, it, it, it's another election year and that's an opportunity for a teacher to 
uh, seize on some some events and and kind of use them as learning moments. So I'm wondering how you're going to be shaping your curriculum around um, the upcoming elections at the end of 2022 and and sort of what you are on the lookout for as potential teachable moments. Well, we're at, you know just fortunate in the sense that I just you know fight for relevancy as a as a middle school teacher. My school is located uh, in the district that was formerly uh, represented by Alcee Hastings. So uh, his replacements or his would-be replacement, Sheila McCormick, you know, is up and down the district in, in involving my school. So, um, you know, a lot of the kids, when there was a primary, a Democratic primary, and I guess there was a Republican primary too, they noticed the signs around town and around our school and had asked, and, you know, she wanted, it's a pretty safe blue seat, so I could assume that she will be uh, the representative for the rest of his term. So I included a little bio about her actually for my lesson on Friday just because it's kind of cool that there's a Haitian American woman that represents my students, many of whom are Haitian American. But, you know, more broadly about just uh, teaching in an election, I think it's wonderful. I'm a nerd. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm I'm all over the 270 to win playing with the maps and stuff. That's actually a, a project that they do in my class with I, I give them several different scenarios, and they have to populate a, a map on 270 to win and then screenshot it and send it to me. And that's kind of how we learn about the electoral college. This of course is a midterm, so it won't be a presidential map that they'll be filling out for this one. It'll be more of a, uh, you know, congressional map. I'm kind of, I'm interested. I've never taught in a, in, in an election that had just happens post redistricting. So I, I, I have like a thing writing about gerrymandering and I show the salamander and the kids are like, wait, what? And I'm like, yeah, I know it's crazy. Anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> but this year I'm actually uh, in, in late February uh, when I go over elections and stuff like that. I'm actually going to dig into a, a bit about that because, um, you know, I think it's really interesting. The, the case in, in Michigan where they went from having like genuinely like the most gerrymandered uh, districts ever uh, to having they just released uh, one uh, their new um, legislative seats, I guess their state legislative seats um, that was you know created by like a nonpartisan uh, commission, non political commission. Um, so you know I'm kind of interested to see how my students receive that because that's that's like the nitty gritty, you know. And as as someone who works with middle schoolers, like there's only so much numbers that I can throw at them before I become a math teacher and they become very disinterested. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see the receptiveness to that. Do you see civics education kind of being rewritten over the next 12 months? I mean, you're obviously always kind of tweaking the curriculum a little bit, but um, are you anticipating any sort of major changes uh, as the year rolls out? I can say that, you know, the state of Florida is actually rolling out a whole bevy of new civics related uh, uh, education material um, with the, uh, the Governor DeSantis's best standards initiative. They're kind of doing a, a top to bottom soup to nuts revamp of civics education throughout the whole state of Florida. There's a whole bunch of new standards that are being placed, not just in, in seventh grade, which I got to tell you, I'm like really excited about because formally there had not been a standard where you have to teach the kids about the electoral college. Obviously you're going to teach them about how a president is elected, but it was not a required part of the curriculum, which is madness. Um, but now that's included, which is really, really important. 
there's some other things as well. But I think over the next 12 to 18 months, I believe the new standards take, they've already been approved and we, we, we are receiving, teachers are receiving professional development on that now. There's also a, a new civic steel of excellence, which is this ongoing professional development and then ultimate certificate that teachers can receive. We haven't gotten exact much information about that yet because it's forthcoming. But I know that Governor DeSantis has certainly spoken and has invested a lot of time, um, his administration has, into revamping and then placing a much higher importance on civics education. And his, I take him at his word. He, you know, said that he wants the uh, the, the state of Florida to lead the country in, uh, in civics education. And, um, you know, just as a civics teacher and, you know, frankly, a critic of the governor, I'm glad to see that he and his team are placing such an importance on this and doing it in a really thoughtful manner as well. Because, you know, the changes that they've proposed will affect every student in the state of Florida from Garden all the way through, uh, you know, senior year of high school. And at least the stuff that I've seen so far seems reasonable. Welcome. Matt, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to add or that I, I didn't ask you about that you're, is on your mind as the new year rolls out? One of the best approaches that I would recommend to teachers or just anybody really talking about the events of January 6th or really kind of any difficult topic is you start with the head, then you have the heart, and then you have the conscience. You know, your head, you ask, like, you want the kids to tell, to ask you, like, what happened, you know, but then you want to check in with their hearts and their uh, about like how this sort of makes them feel. I was very scared on January 6th um, and January 7th and <laughs> still to this day. Um, and I, I think, uh, you know, there needs to be an account for the, for the heart as well. But then there's the conscience and teachers and adults, you know, regardless of your political affiliations, I think you need to not be afraid to lead with what you think is right. Cause you know, things can be uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean that they're bad. And, you know, if you, you know, stick to the fact, you stick to the truth and you kind of make that as a commitment, that's again, that's a, that's a prerequisite of how a democracy works is that everybody's kind of operating in good faith and doesn't assume bad faith just because somebody disagrees with them. So, um, you know, I would encourage anybody that's, you know, going to talk about January 6th with their students or uh, thinking about talking about, you know, the George Floyd protests or mask mandates, vaccine, you know, mandates, all these sort of things lead from a place of empathy and then help your students or help whoever you're working with to feel empowered enough to have an opinion, um, you know, and to, and to stand on it. Matt Kiernan, seventh grade civics teacher. He teaches in West Palm Beach. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me again. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find archived shows on our website, wmfe.org intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.